This is the second episode of the Pitbull Awareness Podcast. I am your host, Misha Gruel. Ooh, dropping the name? I am dropping my full name. Wow. I don't give a shit anymore. Okay, excellent. I like this. And I am here with Angela Curry. Howdy doody. Who is a dog trainer of 20 years? Yes. Yes. Um, well, 13 professionally. Okay. So that's when you start taking on actual clients. Before then, it was a hobby. And then I got Coda. Gotcha. Okay. And he rocks my world. <laughs> oh, man. Jesus. Coda changed everything. Oh, yeah, man. When you get that one dog that makes you rethink life itself, it'll do something to you. Well, um, yeah, if you want to go, I guess, a little bit into some of your educational background with dog training and how you got to this point. Absolutely. So I started when I was 12 years old, actually, which is shocking to me now that I said that out loud. Um, I began my whole journey with uh, Future Farmers of America. So for those that don't know, it's kind of like 4-H, but it's geared towards essentially teaching the youth how to be self-sufficient. And I wasn't interested in raising livestock because I knew at the end I had to slaughter them. Mm-hmm. Like, they had to go up for auction. Right. And I was like, wow, how can I avoid doing that? <laughs> so they had a chapter for dog training. And you could handle their herding dogs. And they taught you, you know, the first time you show up, they teach you just the basics. And they show you. And then they let you handle the dog. And I don't know if it was just my school that did that or just my part of FFA. But I ended up learning obedience on herding dogs. Interesting. So then the same happens with the state fair rolls around and instead of taking in livestock, you take a dog that you've trained. So my mom got me a dog off of a newspaper ad that they were getting rid of that they couldn't housebreak and they couldn't do anything with because that sounds like something a 12-year-old should handle. And I came home one day and there he was, Casey. And in a week, I had that dog fully trained. And by the time State Fair rolled around, I was already doing disc dog stuff. Damn. Like, he would take a run and jump off my chest, catch the disc, like, the whole nine. Excellent dog. Um, And it just developed from there. And then I started training neighbor dogs. And then I started just anything I could consume of training. And it just grew from there. So I went to school, did the thing everybody's supposed to do. And it sucked, and it continued sucking, and I ended up moving from West Virginia to North Carolina in 2011, and that's when I picked up professionally. And I worked at PetSmart for a little while, building clientele. I went to every seminar I could book. I learned on YouTube. I learned with my own dogs. I learned from an in-person Her name is Geraldine. She worked in Winston-Salem. I worked under her mentoring, learning force-free. And I feel it's very important that I establish all of my training in force-free, then moved over into balanced work when I realized that something is always more rewarding to the dog. You will have dogs that the thing you're working together with is more important to them. So when you're working in a partnership toward a goal that they also want to do, it's vastly different than when you're working with a dog unnaturally. 
And what I mean by that is dogs are not supposed to live the way we're living today. Right. It's incredibly different working herding dogs on sheep and cattle, doing something they're meant to do and driven to do, and trying to get a boxer to behave in an apartment complex. Mm -hmm. These are two vastly different things. So I had to learn an entire different skill set. And what that came down to is I was about to lose my first client dog. And not first as in he was my very first client. First as in this is the dog that is going to change my career because his reactivity is so bad that I cannot channel his attention into something other than explosions because he was fed from the explosions. Mm -hmm. And when I realized that, the big thing that changed for me is that's the moment in time that I realized I have to establish something vastly different. And that dog was going to be euthanized if I did not develop a different skill set. So that's the first time I used a prong collar. And I used it on myself. I used it on my own personal dog first. I learned through YouTube videos. I reached out to yet another mentor about that. I had been to seminars to learn it, but I wasn't comfortable with it. And then I was very honest with the owner of this dog who has since passed naturally but it worked out and it changed my perspective entirely because it opened up a, an avenue for us to communicate more thoroughly because that's what launched me into learning why dogs learn a little bit differently than we do technically we learn best under pressure there's a dopamine chase that happens that requires pressure. There's something there that requires us to propel, propel, propel ourselves forward to gain something. So that's when I started studying neuroscience behind dogs. Because if I'm going to use these tools, I want to know why. And it just led me down a very different path. Um, what was... I guess, what was it that got you interested in studying epigenetics from the perspective of a dog trainer? And I guess maybe for clarification, because as, as I understand it, it's a fairly new field. Or a, oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's not really something that's been touched upon very much, especially in the realm of dog training mm -hmm. and behavior modification. If you could give a definition of, like, what is epigenetics? Oh, certainly. So... I am no expert. Well, I just want to draw that out. I am not a genetic expert. I am not a geneticist. I do not, none of this. I just live on Google Scholar. When I have a question, that's the first place I go. So I cannot be held liable. <laughs> but there is a difference in genetics and epigenetics. When we talk genetics... We're definitely talking, and everybody openly accepts genetics in dogs, because genetics in dogs is what makes a German Shepherd a German Shepherd, a lab a lab, an American Pit Bull Terrier an American Pit Bull Terrier. We all know genetics play physical roles. Otherwise, we wouldn't be trying to dabble in changing our baby's eye collar. We sure. know that this is what this is. But we openly accept that genetics is why labs fetch. But nobody ever looked into why that was in dog training. And, again, that's, that's what caused this whole avalanche is behavior. Okay, so if genetics cause behavior, how is that? 
that's when I fell into epigenetics. So epigenetics is essentially the, just imagine light switches that turn genetics on and off. So the first study that came on my radar was the study about the mice and the cherry blossom scent. And essentially the summary of that is mice in a cage, they would release a cherry blossom scent and then they had a shock pad. And every time they would release a cherry blossom scent, they would shock the mice. And they very quickly learned when the cherry blossom scent came to get off of the floor. Well, that wasn't the most interesting part because, of course, that is the stasis of positive punishment is avoidance. Mm -hmm. So the interesting part was when they bred the mice and the mice pups exhibited the same anxiety and fear response to the cherry blossom scent, Hmm. even though they had never been introduced to either of those things. So that is what triggered the epigenetic research into behavior. Essentially, what we're looking at is generational trauma. That's why we carry these patterns and behavioral patterns. It's instinctual. We learn through patterning and we pass that on our DNA imprint. So that's what the epigenetic imprint shows as, is behavior. So, and there's a lot more... To it than that, it's it's so complex because genetics are your physical state of being. The epigenetics is what turns these things on and off and kind of shape your instincts and your fears that naturally occur from birth. But your epigenetics and your genetics work together in a way that if that mouse smells the cherry blossom scent, the genetics kick in, which kicks in their adrenals and their limbic system that tells them fight or flight. So it's all very interwoven and very interconnected. Got it. So I guess in to sum it all up, genetics is like you you get what you get. You can't change that. But it sounds like epigenetics is kind of malleable. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So that's when you're looking at almost like a neural pathway healing. Um, and it can be done. It's just you have to recognize that that's what it is before we start going into that. So your dog immediately feels anxiety around this, which is funny because I see so many dogs in rescue that people just, oh, well, the dog was abused. Well, what if it wasn't abused? What if one of the parentals was hit by a car and survived and now they have a fear of cars? Mm-hmm. Was that... Was that just transferred now we don't know right but now i know i have a base to work on of reconditioning the car to to shape it so listening to a podcast the other day i heard that genetics make the letters the environment makes the words the nurture makes the sentences and all of that together makes the story so if we are not looking at essentially what has happened lineages down the line to develop that behavior, how are we supposed to fix it in the first place? Right. Because you have to even consider what happened to the dame when she was pregnant with the litter because we're seeing more and more that if she was stressed and she's pumping out cortisol the entire time, we have heightened behaviors in these puppies. And, of course, it doesn't. it ranges from puppy to puppy because they're also programmed with their own personalities, which is always denoted for some reason, which is very frustrating to me. But one puppy might not get as much as the other. And people are like, oh, well, they're the runt, so they're going to be skittish. 
well, what if they got less of the cortisol? So they're not as skittish. Mm-hmm. So it's never going to be cut and dry. But if we don't accept it for what it is, then we are essentially just washing away everything that that dog is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to kind of tie this in with, I know this podcast is primarily pertaining to pit bulls, and I'm saying that in the umbrella sense of the term, mm-hmm. because unfortunately that is the way the general public understands what we're talking about. Um, I guess, I don't know, should we like, should we just use the term bully nuts for this? I don't know. I don't know what's appropriate. Well, honestly, it's just bulldogs. Like, just bulldogs. They're, they're just they're bulldogs, they're mutts. Um, and just for the general public, American Pit Bull Terrier is a breed. And I can promise you that 99.9% of the people that aren't in the breed couldn't point one out if their life depended on it. And although, yes, they're not rare, but they're not every dog you see in the shelter. Most of the dogs that you see in a shelter are poor, poorly bred bully breed mixes mm-hmm. or bull breed mixes yeah yeah a lot of am staff um just random apbt thrown in yeah yeah and those this is the scary part of it is those are technically the call dogs those yeah. are the dogs that dogmen didn't want right. on their yard right so even the dog aggression that we see coming out of those dogs is mild And to know that scares the public because they don't know how to mold it. They don't know how to use it. They don't know, and and it's sad because it's kind of like you go to an art gallery and you see a piece of art, and to some people it's like, oh, well, mm, what's that? And then to other people they're like, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And from a dog trainer's point of view that's been in this game for so long, I love to see drives of dogs come out. Not saying I like dog fighting or dog aggression. That's not it at all. But when you mold those things and that intensity and that drive into something else that's more productive, to me that's the most beautiful thing that I could see. It's giving purpose and breathing life back into that dog. Right. That would otherwise be spending its life sitting on a couch. And yeah. And doing not much of anything. And just building frustration to go outside and scream at the world. Right. Like this asshole. Oh, you're not an asshole. (laughs) He's kind of an asshole. Look, he's a donut. He doesn't know anything. (laughs) He's a donut for now. Um, yeah, but I guess uh, part of the part of what I wanted to rope into this conversation is I know there's a lot of folks um, that are probably listening to this podcast who are maybe on the quote unquote anti pit bull side. Yeah. Um, who you know either agree with breed like outright breed bans or heavy restrictions on breeding neither of those things work yeah obviously neither of those things are going to work but either way we have you know a fair amount of people on that side that are probably listening on this and you know you see a blocky headed quote unquote pit bull that mauls a child like, mm-hmm. How does how should the general public look at that situation? Like, should we... It seems ineffective for me, knowing what I know, to look at that and say, oh, that's a quote-unquote pit bull, 
Like, that's why this thing happened. Yeah. But clearly there's other things going on under the surface. Like, you just, you just talked about, and the vast majority of dogs that are going into the public are backyard bred, poorly bred. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is the missing piece that a lot of people are neglecting, or not even neglecting, but don't realize because these conversations aren't happening. Mm-hmm. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, is it is the problem the breed, or is it is it something else? Is it something deeper than that? Both. Okay. It's, it's both. Um, the breed... Less. It's more of the general public's outlook of the breed. And they're doing a terrible disservice by saying, you know, hibbles or couch hippos or house hippos. Those, you are not only disrespecting the integral reason for that breed and why they were raised the way they were and why they became what they are. And... Also, you're doing a terrible disservice because that's the equivalent. Because you don't see people doing that with Malinois. No. You don't see people doing that with German Shepherds. You don't see people doing that with Akitas or Caucasian Shepherds. You don't, none of those dogs. Everybody knows those dogs are serious. Dobermans, Rottweilers, you name it. Everybody knows this. But for some reason, and I cannot understand why, they want to infantilize Pitbulls. And they want to humanize them in a way that just doesn't make sense to me. And if we could uncover and come to terms with the the dog's history, what they were truly bred to do, and allowed people to investigate and kind of explore how to direct those drives more appropriately, and how to see those drives more appropriately, then we wouldn't have the problem that we're having. Like mentioned, breed bans and restrictions. How are those supposed to work when you can't even spot a pit bull? Not you, but the general public. Right. Um, But by just continuing the, oh, well, they're house hippos, we're going to see more attacks because people aren't taking it seriously. That's like handing someone a loaded weapon and telling them it's perfectly fine to tote mm-hmm. around in your purse without the safety on. Right. It's terrifying to me. Yeah. Um, and not because of that breed in particular, I would also not give my elderly neighbor a Malinois for that exact reason. So by just not looking at it and, it and talking about it openly, they were bred to fight. There was no other purpose for that animal. They were bred to fight. So... And that was the first client I had to face with a prong collar. Really? It was an American Pitbull Terrier-esque dog. He was thinned out. He looked the part. I can't tell you if he was, but I definitely know there's a lot of dogs in Hillsborough that look just like that. Mm-hmm. So he thrived in the explosion. It was the build of frustration that, that caused that dog to explode the way he did. And the reason he was facing euthanasia was because he busted off the leash one day. Mm. And he attacked a dog. But at that point, I can't tell you whether he attacked a dog because his genetics had been 
poo-pooed away and the frustration builds and then the cup will always runneth over. There, You can only fit so much in there before it comes out. So his drives weren't addressed. That I didn't know how to do any of that at that time. So I ended up capping the explosions and then learning to redirect the drive. So how much further could I have been if this was an open conversation? Because trust me when I say, when I was a force-free trainer, there's no bad dogs, they're all good dogs. Bully breeds are the best thing that's ever happened. I suggest them for everybody. I was that person. Yeah. Until that dog, his name's Oscar, was. But he taught me that that's real. Mm-hmm. And it's not his fault. It's not in how they're raised. It's not in how they're trained. It's genetic. And the funny thing is, and this is the other thing that I learned, is that dogs don't mentally mature until the ages of one year to three years. Mm-hmm. And epigenetics change throughout your life so when your hormones start doing certain things and your cortisol spikes start doing certain things and you start maturing that's when you'll see the epigenetic toggles the mental maturity comes on and then all of a sudden your dog starts doing things that he's never done before and that was his maturity he came into his dog aggression yeah and so with people who i mean most most of the dogs that you see in shelters, they're not American Pit Bull Terriers. And it's easy to draw the line. It's like, okay, American Pit Bull Terrier is a dog-aggressive breed by nature. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what they were bred for. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of dogs, the vast, the vast majority of quote-unquote pit bulls that people have, they're just a smattering of various oh, yeah. bully breeds. Absolutely. So, it's easy to see how the couch hippo velvet hippo idea came about Mm -hmm. because when you're dealing with dogs that are of mixed lineage mixed genetics you're literally just throwing spaghetti at the wall absolutely you don't know what you're getting Mm -hmm. and you might have a dog that you know is a quote-unquote pit bull Mm -hmm. and it just gets along with everybody absolutely and it's just happy-go-lucky like bomb proof whatever Mm mm-hmm but then you get the people who, you know, let's say they live out in Hillsborough and, you know, we know. We know. We we know we get a lot of um, drivey. Real boys. Gamey real boys showing up in shelters out here. You know, somebody goes to a shelter with the intention to adopt a dog mm-hmm. and all they see are pit bulls. They adopt this dog and they think they're going to take home a cow chippo. Yes. And they find out they have a real gamey son of a bitch on their hands. What what do they do and how can they assess that? Like, how, how can your average dog owner look at that and understand what they're dealing with? That's the hard part is it's very difficult. Uh, and the only reason I learned is I immersed myself in the culture. I befriended a dogman, and I learned so much. And he wasn't active in fighting, and he hasn't been active in fighting since I've known him. He did have dogs from Hillsborough, and he did breed for a very large stint of time. And I met a lot of his dogs, and I got the feel for them. And I, I started understanding 
more and more that it is deep ingrained in genetic coding in these dogs. It does not matter what you do. You, and that's what's terrifying about getting puppies from the shelter. You don't know what they are. You don't know what genetics are going to turn on because that's getting the culture. You will hear cold dogs, hot dogs, and dogs that turn on. Some dogs never turn on. You never know. So it's a crapshoot. But I am a trainer that knows the things I know because I immersed myself in the culture of it. And that's the bad part is you either go out on your own and you're determined to learn or you contact someone that can help you. But who right. is that? Because you can't turn to these people that are, oh, it's all in how they're raised. And you can't turn to these trainers that just cap every behavior and just compulsion train every bit of it. You definitely can't go to a force-free trainer that just tries to appease it. So what do you do with it, right? It's There's no right answer at this point in time. And I think that that is a com- compounding issue. Like That's why we're seeing what we're seeing. Not only are we not talking about it, but there's a lot of professionals that don't know how to remedy the explosions. We don't know how to balance it. Because for me, teach the dog to hunt. Yeah. Give the dog a job. Do barn hunts. Do it in your backyard. Figure out how to get in contact with someone that can help you teach the dog to rat. Take him to barns. Let Turn him loose. But how many people can do that? Yeah. So then we have to look at, okay, how can we enrich in these four walls? Okay, we can do scent work, we can do this, we can do that. But then you have to look at the fact of, I can do that aspect of it, but I still have to do formal training to cap certain behaviors and to work with the dog in a livable fashion. So that's the most complex and hardest part of it, is trying to find a balance between nature and nurture. Because you cannot just expect these dogs that are built for battle to just be comfortable living on a couch. Again, I'm going to revert back to, we don't expect that of Dobermans, of German Shepherds, of large guardian breed dogs. We don't expect that of any other breed. But because we have detailed American Pit Bull Terriers and umbrella term Pit Bulls, air quotes, as house hippos, it, it, that's the disservice. We, they were bred for something so brutal that people are so disconnected from that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. When really, if that dog got out and helped take down a few hogs, he's going to be good for a couple weeks. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that would be the happiest that dog has ever oh, been. Oh, yeah. Spattered in blood. You name it. And it just it fries my system to even think about it because... Think of a Dogo Argentine. Nobody questions that that dog's bred for battle. Mm-hmm. They kill mountain lions. Yeah. They are just the most badass animals. American Pit Bull Terrier is no different. They're in a smaller, more dynamite package. But why do we dishonor them so so greatly? Right. I just, I cannot fathom that. And it, it you know, when I, when I adopted Phantom... I, I was coming into pit bull ownership from the perspective of somebody who was already kind of anti-pit bull. Yeah. Like, I already had some reservations about a dog like that. Oh, yeah. They're all over the news. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I mean, get it. you can't fucking deny it. Mm-mm. I get it. They're everywhere. If you deny it, I can bring up 40 articles right now. Sure. That that's probably happened in the last two sure. weeks. And we've all seen the videos. Oh, absolutely. You know, we've all seen the footage of the San Antonio oh, Mall. Oh, God, that was terrible. And, like, we've all, we've all seen that. And to bring something like that into your home, I went into ownership of a breed like this kind of having an idea of what to expect. Like, this dog and, you know, some of these, some of the stereotypes didn't live up, mm-hmm. you know, as, as you've seen. Um, I mean... He's a donut. <laughs> He's kind of a donut. Um, but, you know, if I had had a real drivey son of a bitch on my hands, you know, I was prepared for that. But how, how, can, how can a dog owner lean into that, I guess? Like, a lot of, a lot of folks, I think, have a hard time accepting that. Oh, yeah. As something that is natural and positive, where, you know, a lot of people view aggression as a negative thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Which, aggression is what got us here. Aggression, it's, and this is another thing that just blows my mind. We take dogs and we almost make them two-dimensional. Like they're this or they're that or they're, they're dog-friendly or they're people-friendly or they're that. But how do we define a characteristic that is so simple? I'm not friendly all the time. Are you? How do we expect a dog to be? And it sets people up for failure. So I guess my my answer to that is you have to get to a point of acceptance. You have to. Aggression can be harnessed and directed. And a lot of things that people see as aggression is built prey drive. Or it's, it's built into their system to cause a reaction. It's not because the dog woke up that day and was like, I'm going to go pick a fight. It's because that dog saw something, became aroused for ABC reason, and it kicked their limbic system into a drive. It's that simple. But people don't understand the complexities of what it truly is and the disconnect from nature. Like, if you turned on the TV and there was a dog on a hog bringing him down and just ripping the flesh away from that hog, I'd be like, that's gnarly. That's that's probably the best time that dog's ever had. Mm -hmm. But any other person could look at that and be like, that's the most horrific thing I've ever seen. But that's the nature of the dog. Yeah. Nobody thinks twice when they see natural geographic lions taking down a wildebeest and ripping it to shreds, but all of a sudden it's not okay for a dog to do because it's your pet. So to me, that's one of the most selfish things a human can do is bring this animal into their home and then just be like, well, if you do that, you're a bad dog. Mm. Meanwhile... They have Garfield the cat going outside, literally murking every animal it comes across, and they're like, oh, look at him go. And it truly doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So really, it comes down to people need to accept the history, they need to accept the drives, they need to accept the wants of the dog, and learn how to shape that, mm-hmm. how to enrich that, 
how to get that out, and then how to cap the unwanted behaviors to make it livable. Me personally, I'll never have a drivey dog like that. Yeah. I am way past my prime with that. I don't have any interest. I have a Malmix now, and he is dynamite, but I can turn him off easily. He's like, cool, I'm done for the day. And he, he is. He's a pet then. But I have to extinguish what he needs let off. It's like building pressure cookers. Mm-hmm. If you don't flip that valve and let him let off steam, he's going to destroy your house and your life. So it's just different because we've crafted these dogs over generations to show that aggressive side and turn that on when we ask. Mouths are built to bite people. So it's insanely different. But American Pitbull Terriers are very much the same. It's just they were never taught to turn off. It's go time. You're either on a chain or it's go time. And we're we're doing the spring pole. We're doing the flirt pole. We're getting all that out. We'll never move forward if we don't accept what they are, who they are, and help them through it in our society that we built for them. So, in terms of, like, bringing it back to, like, the epigenetic aspect, mm-hmm. you know, um, at what point is it fair to point the finger at breed versus, like, when should we be, I guess, peeling back the layers and looking at, do we need to look deeper? Oh, absolutely. Um, I don't think it's ever fair to say it's the breed. Um... Because we've created it. I would never say, oh, it's because it's a Malinois. It's because the handler erred. But with all the backyard breeding and things like that, first of all, I wouldn't believe a newscaster if you paid me to at this point. They'll call almost anything a pit bull. Mm-hmm. That's what, yeah. what flares people's emotions and gets people to buy into it. They didn't do a DNA on that dog and even if they did we know that those are entirely accurate so it's definitely a mishandling mismanagement and misinformation for me that that creates this problem but we should always absolutely look at the the reasonings behind it for instance the the little girl that got killed in garner by the two bull breed of sorts dogs it was over arousal that spilled into a predatory drift. Those mm-hmm. dogs had no idea what they were doing. They were just having a good time. Mm-hmm. That's not true aggression. Very rarely are you going to see true aggression come out of an out of a dog toward a human. It's it's not normal, and I'm willing to say that the vast majority of it that I have seen of true aggression, something's going on. Like, something deeper in there is going on. Like, something psychological. Yeah, and I'm not talking, like, you know, large guardian breeds or Cass, the Caucasian Shepherd. No, those, I mean, there are some dogs that are bred to be human aggressive. But then you have to look at why that component is there. So, dogs that typically go after people. There was another, the the lady, was it in London, I believe? There was a lady that was attacked by three dogs. The, the three guy, bully yeah. mixes. They yeah. were like 
American bullies yeah. that went after her. Yeah. That was over arousal. Yeah. It just slips in. All of a sudden, dog brain checks out, primal brain checks in. Now we have a mess. Mm -hmm. Whose fault was that? That was the handler's fault. He should know his dogs better, but how is he supposed to know his dogs better when there's so much misinformation surrounding these dogs? The fact that someone at this point in time, in 2023, can call any dog a nanny dog blows my mind. They should be handled as weapons just as a Malinois, just as a German Shepherd. They should be handled as weapons. Yep. So, we always have to look deeper. To me, from my point of view, I always want to know the reasonings why. But almost every single time I've seen it, it's either something's going on health-wise that's causing a psychological reaction that's not healthy, or this is over-arousal, a filled frustration bucket, and now we have everything spilling over. Now we have somebody injured. So there's also an another one that I saw, the Justin Gilstrap in Georgia. There was a young boy. That kid that got scalped. Yeah, yeah, he got scalped and his ears got ripped. He got yeah. mutilated. He was, yeah. I can't remember how many dogs there were. Three, I think. There's three? Three or four. And they were some bull breed sort, right? He was riding a bike. They ripped him off his bike and ripped him apart. Yeah. What triggered that? Well, pack mentality, mm -hmm. predatory drift, over arousal, and those dogs had gotten out several times. There's a frustration aspect to that, and that's why the frustration build is so dangerous. I see dogs running fence line barking and barking and barking and hyper fixating. And I know that one day that dog gets over the fence, there's going to be annihilation happening. Because the frustration is being allowed to build. When in reality, if we had addressed that appropriately, or if nature had taken its course, the dog is going to be corrected out of that itself. It's going to be killed. Or it's going to run the yard. Mm -hmm. There are no other options. So there's a lot of human error here because we're not giving them what they need for their instinctual just soothing. Mm -hmm. They have to let this steam off. Yeah, so we've all been conditioned to this, right? Like we go to, we're all told, adopt, don't shop, go to a shelter, pick out a dog. And, you know, they probably see like a puppy or something and they think that's great. That's a blank slate. I can pick that up and I can mold it and I can shape it into whatever I want it to be and explain to me why that is an incorrect assumption. So there's the layers, right? So first you have your breeds. What breeds do we have? Let's take Coda for instance. I had no idea what he was. And then I started seeing different drives come out. Never had dog aggression. Never. His primary breeds, based on an Embark panel, was Dalmatian, Labrador, American Pitbull Terrier, American Staffordshire, and Superman. <clears throat> but never once did he ever exhibit dog aggression. But what I found interesting is I never shaped his behaviors outside of obedience and the behavioral modifications I had to do because I myself caused severe separation anxiety in that dog. Really? Yes, I built that in entirely. And didn't mean to. Uh, it was where he had frostbite when he was young and I had to sling him everywhere. And he grew so attached to me, 
I just built really bad habits, which caused his anxiety to skyrocket when I would leave him. So that's where I started getting into behavioral modification and learning. But when I started taking him to work with me, I was a trail guide. And I never taught him how to do this. But he would run circles around the horses as we would go. And he would go up ahead of us and flush out game. And he would, like... Interesting. I would just watch this and watch this. I'm like, God, I never did that. But he's range trained. And then I started reading after I got his Embark panel done. And Lord, by this time, he was 10 years old. Dalmatian. The job of a Dalmatian was to run with the horse and carriage. Deter anything from impeding, essentially, going from point A to point B. And that's exactly what that dog did. I never taught that. It came out of his genetics. So I naturally let it occur. It's a win-win for me. Sure. But I didn't teach that. He's a baby. So you have your breed. Then you have the epigenetics, the coding that comes from both the parents and the grandparents and whatever lineage they have. So if there's a deep ingrained trauma in that lineage, it can show up generations down the line. Then you have the maternal factor. So when a dame is pregnant with puppies, and this is any mammal that I know of, because the testing was done in pigs, the maternal is connected to the embryo and the fetus, whatever you want to call it. So if she's pumping cortisol and pumping stress and pumping serotonin and pumping all of these things, those dogs' bodies are going to match to a point. So when you go and pick up a puppy, yeah, they're cute, round, and fluffy at the moment, but you truly don't know who that dog is going to be. Now, yes, environment and nurture matter, but you're never going to change the letters that form the story. So we can work with it, and we can learn how to work with it, but they're not a blank slate. And that's sincerely why now I cannot tell people, yeah, just go get a dog from rescue. Yeah. Because it's so unrealistic to know what that puppy's going to be like. And then we have to add on the factor, what did that puppy go through in the first developmental stages? What traumas did that puppy experience? What fears did that puppy experience? Um, and they're the factors that build onto that, like a puppy being born in a shelter and you just have adrenals just pumping yeah. constantly. So what are we going to develop into? I don't know. I can evaluate an adult dog. I can't evaluate and tell you what a puppy's going to be like. I can tell you the characteristics of the personality that it's, it's exhibiting in this moment, but I cannot tell you three years from now, this dog isn't going to be dog aggressive. This dog isn't going to exhibit high levels of arousal and intensity around prey. I can't tell you that. Then we have to factor in something that most people don't want to talk about is what communicable diseases did that puppy get exposed to? Mm. So imagine Parvo. 
right? We all know and accept in human beings that there is a gut-brain barrier. What happens in the gut reflects in the behavior. So what if that puppy had parvo? And we have rescues out here that are raking in puppies, peddling them out. I can't tell you how many parvo exposures. I can't tell you how many puppies that they, they spend thousands on bringing through parvo. And I'm here to tell you, this is my personal experience, but you can line up 10 dogs in front of me and tell me one of them had parvo and I can pick it out. Mm. Because the behavior is very different. There is almost an over or full encompassing level of generalized anxiety that is exhibited in that dog. So what happened to your gut flora? What happened to your gut biome that has now affected your development psychiatrically? So there's so many factors to it that at this point, I see it almost as more of a gamble than anything else, picking out a puppy that way. Mm -hmm. When you have ethical breeders that are making sure to manage every step of that dame's pregnancy, every step of what temperament they're breeding for. And then after the puppies are whelped, they're doing full handling and care to make sure that that puppy is never stressed or when they are stressed, that they are taught how to manage it. So there's so much to it and the general public is just not informed on it. Mm -hmm. Because how do you know? You don't know unless you're like me and you're a nerd and you spend half your life on Google Scholar just trying to understand. Right. So it's just, I mean, that's kind of the shitty thing, right? It's it's just kind of up to the individual to get to a point where they start questioning what they understand mm-hmm. and researching more. Yeah, that's how I started. I figured out I didn't know anything. I thought I knew everything. Oh, my God. As a 20-year-old trainer, I was like, I can make every dog sit. Okay, but I can't make every dog live withable mm-hmm. in a normal family structure. Hell, we're not even supposed to live in nuclear families. Right. We're but supposed to we live are. in, like, multi-family units. Mm-hmm. And dogs are supposed to have a job. Right. But we've removed the job from them. They have no purpose, and now we're just medicating the hell out of them trying to appease a nature that's so ingrained in them. But we rip the rug out from under them. Right. And then we have maulings. And to be completely transparent, I don't blame breeds. I blame handlers. And absolutely, there are some dogs that are not safe for public. They're just not. And there's some that, I mean, I've discussed this plenty There's idiopathic aggression that is exhibited unprovoked and unwarranted. And you can't even pattern in some dogs. And it can be caused by brain tumors, by brain chemistry screw-ups, by almost anything. What if that dog does have focal seizures that have gone undiagnosed because people don't know how to spot them? So... The videos that you see of these dogs just exploding and mauling people, you have to go all the way back. Where did this come from? I don't know, but I know that that dog's not safe. And everybody's so alarmed when you talk about behavioral euthanasia when, in reality, 
that dog that mauled that person or that dog that continuously bites out of fear or that dog that that has the idiopathic aggression markers are they happy can they be happy mm-hmm. is medication happy is almost coma induced sedation every day happy right. it's we have to look at this on a level outside of ourselves and I don't believe a lot of people have the capacity to do that. Yeah. Everything can make up epigenetic factors. And that's that's where it gets so overwhelming to look at. Because I mean, early developmental phases, everybody knows about fear periods in puppies. Sure. Going through a traumatic experience in a fear period a fear period is a state of overstimulation because of the information the puppy is taking in. So if something traumatic happens during that event, it's almost a domino effect of epigenetic lighting. So I call it toggles, right? It's like you're at a switchboard and you're just turning things on and off. So now you're reprogramming even in that moment. Having a session with a dog... Let's say they found joy in the explosion of reactivity on a leash because that's their only energy outlet that they know gets the feeling that they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. If something happens during that time, like an interruption, that's what I tend to call what most people see as corrections. I'm not correcting the dog. I'm interrupting the dog to then regain engagement to further direct them. So that interruption, we can kind of see it as a spectrum. Am I just interrupting or am I capping the behavior? So let's say I have a highly explosive dog. We've already gone through all the rigmarole of trying to change this dog's emotions and we finally come to the terms of this dog enjoys the explosion. There's no way that you can change the emotion of a dog that enjoys what it's doing in the moment and try to make it feel more okay with that. They're already at peace with that. They want that. That's when you're looking at capping. So when you're going through the the motions of capping a behavior, much like with my dog, Velos, what happened with him was a slippery slope of a trainer that didn't understand this explosion is feeding him. It's fuel. That's what he wants to do. So what I ended up having to do is cap that behavior so I could get him to re-engage with me. What happens when you cap that behavior is almost like an overstimulation. It's an overload of information that they're trying to work through because it's kind of like, have you ever, well, general listeners, if you're ever about to get into a fight and then all of a sudden it is de-escalated, you still have that all pumping through you. All the chemicals that have risen to make sure that you survive this interaction, they're still there. Right. So the first time I had Velos and I had conditioned him to a prong in the yard, we went out for a walk, he exploded, he rammed into the end of the prong. I tried to catch him beforehand, but you can't always do that. He whipped around, thought about redirecting. I didn't fault him for that. Because all of that rush is there. And where people slip up 
is they immediately try to get them onto something different instead of letting them work through those feelings. So I stood. He tried to redirect. I simply popped the leash the other way. He stopped. He realized it was me. He sat down. He leaked, so his teeth were chattering. His pupils were completely blown out. I knew that dog was in full-blown fight mode. And we sat there for probably close to 20, 30 minutes until he could re-regulate and move through. So the next time, saw a dog coming, set him up for failure, just so I could catch the timing. I caught him beforehand. He regulated much easier. I whipped out my string and ball. We started playing. Now he got that out. Mm -hmm. The next time, the very next time, he saw another dog. He turned to me. We immediately played. He learned in that moment, the explosion over there doesn't work. I'm going to get my explosion here. This feels much better. It doesn't involve a correction. I changed his emotions by capping and systematically redirecting onto something else that exhibits the same feeling and encompasses the same chemicals that he's looking for already. So did I change the genetic coding? No, but I redirected a neural pathway. Does that change epigenetics in the long run? Possibly, but that's where we haven't broken through the science. Because to do that, he would have to have a litter. Right. We would have to view him long-term. He would have to have litter, which he can't. And then we would have to view those puppies. So, potentially, yes. If that makes sense. Yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of the shitty thing about this, this subject is there's not a lot of data available. Oh, it's impressively hard to say this. In general, but also with regard to canine behavior. Oh, for It's sure. almost non-existent. Because mm -hmm. we don't even have it down in people. Right. You know, it's, it's all woo-woo and jokey about generational trauma. Right. But it's true. What is it? Transgenerational trauma. So, there's just not a lot to go off of. Right. But there's a lot that I can do to show my work with it. It does work, but we have to get to an acceptance. I accepted that Belos is always going to look for that explosion. He's always going to look for that rush. I just changed the rush. I mean, you're, you were able to manage Velos because of your experience. Absolutely. You knew exactly what you were looking at. And you knew what to do to remedy it mm -hmm. and give him the outlet that he needed. Mm -hmm. And that was wholly based on your experience. Mm -hmm. Your average dog owner is not equipped for that. Mm -mm. They have to go looking for it. Mm -hmm. They don't even know where to look. And if they do, the vast majority of the sources that you have out there are not talking about these things. So what... What hope is there for your average dog owner? What can they do if they find themselves in a situation where they have a dog that they just don't know how to tap into, they can't get engagement, like the dog is just basically an adrenaline junkie. Yes, absolutely. And how, like, 
your average, like speaking to your average pet owner who's in a situation like what you were dealing with, like what can they do? That's why my job is really hard. And that's why a lot of really good trainers burn out. Because I can do snuffle mats and enrichment games all day long. Right. But is that tapping into the purpose of the dog? And that's, I speak about it all the time. Putting a dog on antidepressants is not remedying anything at all. You're band-aiding a bigger issue. But nobody's ready to have that conversation because it's easier to just accept a pill. And veterinarians, unless they are well-versed in behavior, I have vets calling me for questions. Right? Mm -hmm. And I don't have any special initials behind my name. Every bit of what I've learned is through mentoring and handling, handling government contract dogs, handling the chihuahua next door that will not stop biting people. Like, just consistently learning through hands-on experience. I have no... I've met behaviorists that haven't handled the vast majority of dogs that I have seen and touched. So why and how are they teaching people to fulfill dogs when they don't understand how the dogs aren't fulfilled in the first place? And I'm not speaking badly about that profession, but veterinarians that are prescribing these medications do not understand what those dogs need and they're doing it because people just continuously hound them because of their dog's behavior. So it falls to the general public to understand that I'm sorry that your Dalmatian chases cars, but they're doing it for a reason. Doesn't make it right. Certainly doesn't make it safe. But then how am I supposed to come to you and explain 20 years of nerding out on Google Scholar and be believed? I fight a battle with hope almost every day, to be quite honest. Because I feel a lot of the time I'm screaming into the ether for the betterment of dogs. And I'm being painted as someone that doesn't like dogs somehow. I love dogs. I want them to do what they're made to do. Um, and that's just not feasible in our society. So that circles back around to, okay, then we need to craft something that's, that's compatible with our society. And when people ask me, like, what should I do? I'm like, go get a happy, sloppy golden retriever. They're happy doing anything. You throw a ball six, seven times in the backyard, and they're the happiest dog you've ever seen because that's the job they were born to do. That's what people want. So these same people are falling for the adopt, don't shop mantra. They're going and getting a dog that goes directly against their beliefs. And I, it, it breaks my heart to watch these people break themselves over the coals, wanting a companion and accidentally getting a working animal. That's like, I want a horse. Let me go get a Grand Prix jumper when I just want a trail ride. So it's it's just very, very complicated. Yeah. Yeah. And sad. <laughs> no, it is sad because, you know, a lot of these animals are just set up for failure. Like they just, 
they don't fit well into our world anymore. Mm -mm. I'm curious to know, and I know, like, personally, you shared some of your stories with me. Like, you, I think you said you have worked with one of Garner's dogs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, is, is there some credence to the idea that they are predisposed to certain behaviors? Absolutely. 100%. Their systems are geared for arousal and intensity. They are battle-bred. That's why... And then here's the difference. And there's a very clear difference. I can show you a pick-a-breed dog that doesn't typically go around cattle. You see that dog charge in. That cow faces them or kicks them or whatever. That dog runs like it's on fire. It doesn't stay for the battle. Not cattle dogs. They don't count. But it's the same intensity. Like, everybody knows that Australian cattle dogs are the redneck Malinois. Everybody knows this. The intensity between a cattle dog, a Malinois, and the American Pitbull ter Terrier are the same. It's just the jobs are different. So when you see, let's say, I watched a lab video go into cows and start harassing the cows. The lab got kicked. He screamed, ran out the fence. Done. Can't handle that no more. But then you see an American Pitbull Terrier or any bull breed with that state go in and that cow can launch that dog. Comes back. Comes back. Comes back. We all watched the video of the bull breed dog. Don't know what he was. Go after the horse and carriage yeah. in that state park or wherever it was they were. That dog had no quit. That's what we talk about when we talk about gameness. A lot of people think gameness is just dog aggression. No. Gameness is the willingness to die for what you're doing. And they have that. There's no, once it's engaged, ooh, that dog will die where it's at before it'll quit. And that's the, the part of them that you rarely see in other dogs. And that's what they were bred for. They were bred for the gameness. So once they do hit that over arousal, that's where you see people getting mauled to death is because they don't have quit. It's not in their nature. Working with them, you have to understand that. Behavioral modification absolutely does work with them. And I had... So I, I worked with the dogman who had Garner's lines. And I watched those dogs. And I watched him work those dogs. And he had dogs that would hit a swinging tire and hang there for hours. Yeah. They were built like brick shit houses. And he would have to pull them off of it. Because they are built. We all joke that Malinois are built like machines. Well, so are American Pitbull Terriers. And when you know how to direct that level of drive. And you work in conjunction with it. It can be a beautiful it's just people refuse to look at it for what it is. So how are you supposed to unlock it when you won't even look at it? So if you give them that kind of outlet, you're going to have a much better dog. He could let his breeding, his stud dog out 
to destroy a tire for 30 minutes and then walk him down the street. Perfectly fine. Acting like a normal dog. Because he had the ability to blow that steam off. But you also have to look at it that he knew how to handle that dog. That dog was run on a prong collar. He did use e-collars when necessary. And they knew that there was a cap. He controlled it and toggled it. But again, we have this societal change where we humanize dogs when dogs are tactile. I have never once watched one dog walk up to another and be like, hey, bruh, that's my water bowl. Back up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They don't talk like that. They ask with their body. They ask with societal pressure. They ask with spatial pressure. They ask. And then they correct. And the correction's physical nine times out of ten when they blow through the first two levels. So when we're not talking dog, we're also not allowing them to do what they're naturally bred to do. We're not giving them purpose. We're not giving them anything. We're just asking them to be a part of our lives in the comfortable, you know, snow globe of our life. And Mm -hmm. then... We want them to behave a certain way. So I've definitely, there's a difference. Mm. There will always be a difference. But utilizing that difference is the mainstay of it. Those dogs I worked with, I'll never forget. And then I had Gator. He was a black bull of some sort. Looked a whole lot and acted a whole lot like my dogman friend's dog's came from the same exact area that we live in. Where do you think that dog came from? Yeah. So I capped his dog aggression and directed it elsewhere. I've never had a problem with him since. Mm -hmm. I adopted him out to a vet. She has another dog. A female. Gets along great. Never had a problem. And he goes whitewater rafting because that dog has absolutely no fear. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. He's, he's a whitewater rafting dog. I guess that's the remedy for it, is just educate yourself and lean hard into what the dog was made to do. Mm-hmm. But how are you supposed to know that when you don't know what they are? Right. Right. Because so, there's so much myth packed into dog ownership mm-hmm. nowadays. So much myth and misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Like, we've we've... We've grown so distant to what they were meant to be. Absolutely. How do you even, how do you begin to even begin to tap into that? Like you almost have to have resources. Like you have Uh to know other people who are in either the working dog space or the ethical breeding space. Like unless you have those physical connections, it's almost like you're kind of, I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking back to, you know, the dogs I've had in my family. We didn't know. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> you know, like, sure, it's a beagle shepherd mix, whatever. Just slap it in a crate for eight hours and go to work, and you're mm-hmm. done. Like that's just what you did. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is weird because we have them as companions, but now they. It seems they've become more of a stress than anything else. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like you you get a dog because it's just what you're supposed to do. Like I'm, as the all American family, every every family's got to have a dog. I never get a phone call where people aren't stressed and frustrated. Uh, it's, it's never happened. Yeah. I've never got a, hey, my dog's doing great. Can you help me? Oh, It's always stress-fueled. And it 
is so, it's like somebody stabbed my balloon. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I learned all this stuff, and I have all this knowledge, and now, man, ignorance is bliss. Mm -hmm. Because seeing that, because, oh, here's the thing, everybody's like, oh, chihuahuas are so mean. They're mean because they're not treated with respect as an animal. I have four dogs and two fosters. Of all of those dogs, I have some doodle thing that I picked up in West Virginia that the woman was just basically selling at a gas station for a hundred bucks. I'd seen a Facebook ad and went and got him because I was like, well, I don't have much hope for that guy. I'm just going to go pick him up and see if I can find him an appropriate home. And he was not in good shape. So ended up keeping him because he's fantastic. Uh, Velos, my Malmix. I've got an American or an Australian cattle dog, which is not anything like an Australian cattle dog, which is weird, right? Because he has no characteristics of that. And a uh, Chihuahua mix thing. Of those four dogs, only one of them has killed something. You want to guess which one? It's probably the Chihuahua. Yeah, she she definitely kills small things yeah. a lot. We'll be running in the woods, and she's like, I have a chipmunk. <laughs> Where did you get that? Put it down. Um, <laughs> but those genes still express. But people think just because they're little, they can just shove them in their purse, and those dogs are living a happy life when they're living the ideal life of the human, which isn't even really ideal. That human would be miserable. So it's, it's unfair at this point because you have to change the view of society in regards to a primal animal. And it's it looks like a staggering feat for me. I mean, it is. You're... Everything you're talking about, and that's the reason I wanted to have you here to speak about this, is because, you know, I've listened to my fair share of canine behavior podcasts, mm -hmm. and I never hear these things being talked about. Yeah, it's they just all, stick them in categories. It's very cookie cutter, mm -hmm. honestly. Um, it's depressing. It's really very yeah, depressing. Absolutely. That's why I'm like hitting burnout so hard. Yeah. Um, and you know, I just lost my dog, my, my Coda bear. So it's been even more crippling to me because I suffered such a great loss. And then I look around, and I'm getting phone calls and with each phone call, I'm like, it's not the dog's fault. It's not necessarily the owner's fault. It's yeah. the lack of information that's been given to you. And it's the fact that your dog is not living. Dog's not living. Yeah. You're living so unnaturally that the dog can't express itself. So, of course, you're going to have terrible behaviors. I would, too. So, do you feel like, you know, with regard to some of these behaviors that we see as a result of epigenetics genes as you say tog toggling on and off mm -hmm. in in response to different pressures um just classic example dogs taken away from its mother too early mm -hmm. it doesn't get that that baseline level of socialization that mm -hmm. you would typically get um staying with the mother until at least eight weeks of age is the remedy what is the remedy for that is it is it just finding an outlet? Well, there you're you're touching also on look at 
Look at our state, our mental state. I, I can't speak for the rest of the world. I am entirely ignorant on outside cultures uh, apart from the U.S. But look at our state. How many truly happy people do you know? So, touching on the, the point of puppies that got ripped away from their mother too soon. We see abandonment issues all the time. It, new studies are coming out now from where babies have been left to cry it out and how that reflects in their psyche long term. Mm -hmm. The abandonment issues, the isolation issues, the I can't, I can't rely on other people. They just, there's a lot compounding that. And to look at a person and say, you know, the baby was left in the crib or my, my background is I worked with homeless and delinquent children in West Virginia and you can see repeating patterns even in those children that are not related. They don't know each other, but you see the isolated behavior. You see the mistrust. You see the, the reclusiveness and the abandonment and the I'll hurt you first. That way I'm not hurt. Mm -hmm. You see all these pattern behaviors of abandonment. So when you take a puppy and I'm not humanizing them, but they're still mammals and we still have to look at it as they're mammals. When you look at the psyche going forward, you'll see patterned behaviors in different areas. And again, this is so compounding just like it is with human psychology because there's brain chemistry involved. There are neurotransmitters involved. There's a balance that has to happen there. And then you have the conflicting aspect of a personality that is unknown. Again, that's the, the whole issue that I'm facing with people doing the adopt-don't shop is that's a gamble. You don't know if you're going to be happy with that dog long-term. Yeah. And you don't know if that dog's going to be happy with you long-term. It's almost like if you're going to go that route and you're not going to study the breed and genetics of the dog that you're going to get because you're going to make that gamble, you have to come to terms with, I might have to change how I live if I want to keep this dog. But what frustrates me to no end is the adopt, don't shop mantra and the people saying that then demonize the people that adopt the puppies that then they can't house. They can't live with them. So what do they do with them? Return them to a shelter that was right. never supposed to be a dumping ground in the first place. Animal control was built to control animals, not as a dump. So now what do we do? You change your whole life? Because look at look at people. Huskies. Huskies got a big boom during the Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. They None of those people knew what Huskies were like. They just saw a cool wolf dog and wanted that dog. But did no research. Background, or backyard breeders went crazy breeding those dogs. Then you have actual wolf dogs who are completely different in every aspect than actual dogs. And nobody's prepared for that because it is a lifetime of management and cooperative training and conditioning. They're flighty. They're different. There will never be a dog. And what do you, what do you do? What do you do? What do I do as a professional trying to educate about all of this when I can't just be like, well, the cookie cutter you were talking about, 
they try to put them in a category, right? You are having this, so it's this. How? It can't, it literally can't be that simple because aggression is not that simple. He's having human aggression. Okay, why? Where is it coming from? Where's the root source of the human aggression? Well, he's an Akita. Well, then, I mean, it comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. Or he's a chow. Well, it's been bred in their lines for years. They've been used as guards. Sure. So now what? You have a chow and you live in an apartment. Huh. I hope you're moving. Because what then? You're going to rehome a dog that has probably a bite record at this point, if now it's a problem? So... I think the only way to actually gain ground again is by people looking at this for what it is, but you have the animal rights activists that truly just believe all dogs mean well. And whether they do or not, they don't have a moral compass. They don't abide by ethics. They're primal. We're the ones that came up with ethics. So, yeah. What do, what, what do you do? Yeah. It sounds kind of Honestly, it sounds kind of hopeless. I mean, just being, like, perfectly honest about it, it just seems like there's not... Like, unless... Unless there's a mass public push for understanding animal behavior, like, at a at a very deep level. Mm-hmm. Because pet culture, I think, is the reason why we're at where we're at. And Absolutely. How, how, do you complete, how do you compete with that? Well, it's wild, because bringing up my cat reference again. We accept cats for what they are. Right. We know they're going to murder shit. We know they're going to murder shit. We know that they're going to be pissy half the time. You know not to touch their belly, right? They're going to eat you alive. You might be in bed, and they'll pounce on your face at 3 o'clock in the morning and try to rip your eyes out. We all know that if you die, your cat's eating your eyeballs first. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, why... Is it we accept thoroughly that if we have a ball of python and it gets big enough one day, it might try to eat us. Or if we have a cat, it's just counting the days till we're dead so it can have our eyes. But we humanize dogs and put them in a box they don't fit in and then get mad about it. I mean, to me, and this is just my opinion, society as a whole is hopeless at this point. Well, yeah. That's why I'm getting out of Dodge, right? (laughs) I'm running for the hills because this place don't make sense no more. But, yeah, just deep diving. I wish I could return to the 20-year-old trainer that was just happy to teach sit-down-stay until I started getting into behavioral modification. I started learning the actual intricacies Mm -hmm. that that entails. And I've never spoken with another trainer that deep dives like this. And mine, again, it, and I'm not talking shit on other trainers. They're doing the job that they know they need to do to keep dogs somewhat stable and inside the lines. Right. I get that, and I applaud them. Um, I just wanted to know more, and then I went this route, and now I, I have all of this shit pie that I don't know what to do with. <laughs> yeah. So, you want it? <laughs> Speaking of someone who approaches dog training from... An understanding of genetics and epigenetics. Mm-hmm. What are some of the, I guess, highlight success stories that you have personally dealt with? Oh my God, so many. I'm excited now. Go for it. So, woman calls me Great Pyrenees. 
will not stay in the fence, barks at everything. She loves the dog, but she knows he's unfulfilled. I contact someone down the road, actually in Mebane, and they were looking for a pair. They had one. They needed another. They had a female. This was a male. I phoned him up. Hey, you, I know, are you still looking? You want one? They want to trial him out. I took him over there. They had him in a fence away from the livestock for a little while. They had him actually to where that he could come in and out of the garage, but they had put up a perimeter fence and it lined the other fence. And they watched him for a little while and he was doing really good. And they put him out with the other dog. Did great. Fenced off the goats just to see how he would do. Did great. Opened up the fence. That dog took to it like it was his ingrained genetic behavior. Go figure. That is a breath of fresh air to me to watch that build and go. So then another one, I was emailed actually about a German Shepherd. I don't know the whole backstory. It's really sketchy, but whatever. She asked me to take it. I had a spot. And I get this dog, and he is Russian line. What is it? I can't remember the the initials to it, but he he is bred to to the max for protection work. And the only reason I know that the dog came to me was because she said that he was very reactive to her roommate. Go figure. Roommate had just moved in. So I took the dog on, and he went to a veteran that was in need of a companion dog that he also wanted to work with, and he had handled dogs overseas. And he was having a lot of trouble and struggle with reactivity toward other people and toward dogs and stuff like that. Called me up. We met up, and I got to do hands-on work with someone that has never seen that kind of work before. And I did the same thing I did with Velos. I knew this dog just needed a redirection. He enjoyed the explosion. He's a a protection dog. By line. Ball and string. I came prepared. The dog had already been worked on a prong collar. Came prepared. I popped the prong collar off, put a long line on him, started him on a flare pole. And you just watched hundreds of years of genetics come out of that dog. And he worked for me. Like, I I had spent less than 72 hours with this dog in a hole before he went on to the veteran. Okay? I was just the middleman. And to go up and just immediately be in sync with this dog, because I know him. I studied him. I know the lines. I know how to get all of this out. And I immediately went to work. And that guy watched all that and, and replicated to a T what I was doing. Got all that pent up, just explosive energy out of him. Humans do that, right? So that's where you get your panic attacks. That's where you get just that explosive behavior because you have all of that locked up in you. Dogs carry that too. And sometimes, man, you just got to pop that vent off and let him blow some steam. Mm -hmm. And I did that with that dog. And we were in the middle of Gold Park in Hillsborough. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's people everywhere, dogs everywhere. And this dog was just dead on that flare pole. That's all he wanted. So I made him work all the way through it. Veteran stepped up. He did it too. And then put the prong collar back on him, get him back in line, 
hey, we're working again. And we started on a walk. Same exact thing with Velos. It's it's just a paint by number at that point. He sees another dog. I see him start to build. I do a tiny little pop to redirect and engage. He turns to me, engages with me. I immediately throw out the ball and string. We go to Patuggan. That veteran went home that day after working with me for an hour and a half and updated me two weeks later and was like, this dog is now my partner because I know how to talk to him now. And he knows exactly what I'm saying. I, and I, <laughs> it's so funny because I worked for a horse trainer and he gave me so many gems of information. And one of them I'll never forget is you cannot dance with your partner when you're dancing to two different sheets of music. So when you get on that same sheet and you start feeling your way through it and that dance starts that's the spark that catches the fire and then you just go with it you start actually communicating with that dog and there's no turning back from there it opens a door so that's a huge success story um jack russell terrier same thing reactivity explosions he just want to kill some stuff i got him on scent work hunting mice Good to go. Good to go. That's all he needed. That's all he needed. He needed an outlet. He needed to be productive, and he needed to have a purpose. That's what so many of these dogs need, and they're just not getting it. So there are a lot of success stories along my path that have kept me going all along. But it's the ones where I know they need something, and I, I don't know what they need. And then, like you said, you have these backyard-bred genetic nightmares. They don't even know what they need. Right. <laughs> how, how do you as a trainer even know where to focus if the dog's genetics are all over the place, the epigenetics are unknown, because let's be honest, we don't know the generational trauma that has resulted in this dog that's in front of you. How, where do you start? From the ground up. You, you start from the ground up. And that's why I never understood going to a school to teach you training. Because so much of this is feeling it. So much of this is spending hours and hours and hours watching what I do versus the feedback. I'm always looking for feedback. I'm never, I'm never looking for anything outside of feedback. I need to know how to make my next step to try to get you in sync with me. And the simplistic part of it comes down to you do this, and it is very black and white, right? There's a set structure that has to be in place to have a dog be livable with you. But there's where the balance comes in is you also have to give back to what the dog needs at an instinctual level. So it's starting with the very basics. And what's funny to me is when I bring a dog into a board and train, I don't touch that dog really for the first probably four days. I go through the crate training process. There's just, there's no other option for you. We're crated when we're not supervised. Sorry. A lot of dogs don't like that. I get a lot of crate breakers. Gotta break that. 
Once I get the dog to where I can easily crate them and let them out, I start introducing them to my dogs. And there's this, you know, it, this is the other frustrating part for me. You can absolutely cap certain behaviors. And I, I spend a lot of time, and this is something that's never touched on, ever. And this is something I got from horse training, believe it or not, is there are some things that are unacceptable, and that's okay. Some things have to be an electric fence, and that's okay. So if looking at a dog puts you in this state of mind, we're correcting that. Because that's not acceptable. The end. I have the blessing of having a very, very awesome pack of dogs. And to be quite transparent, my dogs teach my board and train more than I could probably ever teach them. They teach them through fair corrections. They teach them through body language. They teach them through play. They teach them through negative reinforcement that I watch them do. They teach them through so many different avenues that by a weekend, that dog's already different. And then he's already getting in tune with me. He's starting to look at me like, what can I do to get the things I want from you? I'm like, hey, now we're having a conversation. Now let's start grooming this. And there's a ah, this is just wild to me, but everybody thinks they can control behavior with obedience. No. You're not even trying to talk the dog's language at that point. You're just forcing yours on them. How is that okay? So I strip back everything, and I take a dog way back to a natural primal state with my dogs learning in an atmosphere that's safe for them to learn in. So, and if my dog gets bit... I mean, that sucks, you know, but it never happens. I'm not going to allow that to happen. But I shape play as well. Uh, and that's the beauty of e-collar work that people don't want to talk about because they're so afraid of shock collars that they won't even open up the thought of using that pressure to guide them through social situations and things like that. I've never just blown the ears off of a dog. Never done that. I have never done that. E-collars are conditioned. E-collars are used respectfully. But the thing is, is you can't trust everybody to do that. That's where we're getting the fallout. That The compulsion trainers are where all of this fallout is coming from because they're not addressing the base level that you should address before you ever even get to that. To answer your question, I take it all the way back. I'm going, to, I'm going to pull every bit of stress off of you. I'm going to let you blow off all the steam you need to blow off. I'm going to use a flirt pole. I'm going to use a ball. I'm going to use whatever you need to get all of that out. And now once I have your attention, I'm going to layer in obedience to help you get through this society. And then I'm going to make you live withable. Because dogs just aren't live withable. Right. I can't tell you the times that I've gone into somebody's house and they're like, oh, well, he jumps on my counter and he, he eats cat shit out of the litter box and he spreads this everywhere and I he eats my socks and I can't did you correct him for any of it did you just simply disagree with the behavior in a way that he understood well I tell him no it does he speak English does he still get away with it then that's reinforcing the behavior I cannot tell you how many houses I went into that I have done simple things for instance there was a dog Three obstruction surgeries. Three. Big black lab. I was going to say, was it a lab? Big black lab. <laughs> it's always labs. 
Three obstruction surgeries. You know what I did? You know the giant rat traps? Yeah. The big ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put it on the floor, put a sock on it. Oh. Dog went to get it. Bam. Scared the absolute piss out of that dog. But you know what he hasn't done? So if you can think critically and really come up with a way to remove yourself from the correction, the dog learns from the environment. But we've removed ourselves from corrections because that makes us uncomfortable. But is it doing a disservice to dogs? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it makes people feel bad. Yeah, it makes them feel bad. But why? Because otherwise, if that dog was left to its own devices, it's going to die. Oh, there are babies. That's the problem. But they're not. There are... But... But there are babies. But they're not. <laughs> Dogs aren't live-withable anymore. They're just annoyances because we're not teaching them. We're not allowing them to have an outlet. We're not allowing to have them a, ha, that for them to have a purpose. And we're making their lives so small with management that even I would explode. I would just... I guess if I could have my wish, we would return to a natural state to where we would look at a dog for what it is and treat that dog the way it actually needs to be treated. Mm-hmm. And it's what's even more wild to me. Look at the Mexican street dogs. Watch them. Just, just go look at them and watch how they live. There's a check and balance. Why is it there? Because societally, those dogs have learned the boundaries of each and every one of those other dogs. Because otherwise... So, if we're not giving them feedback of what they can and can't do, why wouldn't they be gremlins that you fed after midnight? So, it's just unfair. It's unfair to them. It's working in a corporate job and somebody never telling you you're doing something wrong and you're just continuously getting written up and then fired. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that frustrate the shit out of you? So, all of my training, the vast majority of it is force-free. I mean, hell, I lived on a horse farm with no fences. I didn't lose one dog. They were off leash. Why didn't I lose them? We built a relationship based in trust. Those dogs looked to me for guidance and for answers to questions that they had. Can I go over here and do this? No. Okay, what can I do? You can go do any of that over there. Go swim in the pond. Go chase the ball. Go play over there. Go introduce yourself to the cat. I don't care. But... You, we have to find some kind of balance or we're just going to keep medicating dogs until they die. Lastly, I guess, just what advice would you have for dog owners, specifically owners of bull breeds, who are facing challenges with their dog's behavior and are interested in exploring epigenetics as a potential contributing factor to that? Learn about high-drive dogs. Learn about what makes high-drive dogs tick. Learn how to toggle, letting off steam, and controlling the behaviors. Because that's really what you're looking at. It's not about controlling the dog. It's about allowing them to be who they are, but correcting and shaping in and adding the component of conversation with What's hard is it's almost impossible to find a trainer that can do that because now we are flooded with trainers that are university trainers that don't have a lot of experience in that type of work. 
they're just taught the click reward. And they're taught that it's very black and white. Correct what you don't like, reward what you do like. And that can't be further from the truth. Because you are, by, by that statement alone, you're cutting out every bit of everything else we talked about that is obviously going into this. So does it make it better? Yes, to a point. But to not look at it as a whole, you're just doing yourself a disservice. So if you have a bull breed that you are having a hard time controlling, can contact a professional, see what they say, but do not let it off a leash. Stop doing that. And for everybody else, stop letting your dog run up to other dogs because you don't know what that dog's dealing with. You don't know what that person's dealing with. But start learning about flirt pole work. Start learning about spring poles. Start learning about utilizing that dog's physical need and drive to seek and destroy because you can use that as reinforcement to get on the same sheet of music. So when you learn those key tools, all of a sudden your bull breed's not a problem like he was because you're conversating. So that's that's the very, very hard issue because people are going to these classes and they're just consistently reinforcing intensity, but they're not learning how to help their dog feel their feelings and work through it. So that's my advice. Really dig deeper into why and start looking for the way to get on the same sheet. Thank you so much for your time, Angela. You're welcome. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. Mm Mm-hmm.